Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and we are welcoming back today Bradley Tusk, who's a venture capitalist, political strategist, philanthropist, and writer. He's the co-founder of Tusk Ventures, the world's first venture capital fund that invests solely in early stage startups in highly regulated industries. And he is the founder of the consulting firm Tusk Strategies. And he has written a few books, uh, one called The Fixer, which is absolutely incredible and I would say underrated about his times as a political fixer for everything from incredibly flawed politicians to, uh, you know, better ones like Michael Bloomberg and then some companies. And then he has written a fictional book, which we're going to talk about today called Obvious in Hindsight, but it is based on a lot of experience in the trenches of politics. And I would say I haven't read a book in a long time that, though fictional, teaches you as much about the world and how it actually works as this one. So I'd say it's kind of a blend. Um, and he has done so much. I mean, we I could talk forever about this. He hosts a, po- a podcast called Firewall, um, which I've been on before. And uh, he runs a, a bookstore uh, called PT Knitwear on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, a block away from where I used to live. It's a wonderful space that you should check out. He's also an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School. I can go on and on and on and on. But Bradley, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Well, congratulations on the book. And we're going to get to that because I actually think there's a lot of ways we could weave in and out of your book and what's been happening in the world as you've released this book. But uh, to start off, uh, you've written a few things recently since you've released your book that I wanted to ask you about. The first of which is our mayor. Uh, You and I, I think, I don't even have to ask you that we may have talked about this, but I, I get the sense that you and I probably had a similar feeling about Adams in the sense that, like, I don't know if he was your first choice or I can't even remember if he was mine, but I was certainly excited to have somebody as mayor who wanted to do the job. That was because we did not have one before. We did not have that for eight years with de Blasio. And I would say I've been disappointed. Uh, And and not that he doesn't want to do the job, it's that he, you know, I think some of his flaws have gotten in the way of getting anything serious done. But you wrote something today saying, like, it's not all done for Eric Adams. So, Give me your sense of where you think stand right now. So, look, things are certainly bleak at the moment. There is a serious federal corruption investigation into him. We don't know what they have based on what we know publicly. And the main thing seems to be that he asked the fire commissioner to give a temporary certificate of occupancy to the Turkish embassy. That doesn't in and of itself seem like enough to indict the sitting mayor over. Um, But at the same time, the FBI doesn't usually like confront the sitting mayor on the streets and confiscate their phones um, unless they feel like they've got the goods on you, right? So he's got that. And then last week, a woman came out and said that she was sexually assaulted by him in, I think, 1993, um, but nonetheless is is suing. Um, his poll numbers are absolutely plummeting. Because of the migrant crisis, it feels like the city's sort of out of control from a quality of life standpoint. And also because of the migrant crisis, uh, the budget is about to face massive, massive cuts, which we haven't had in a long time because de Blasio enjoyed the windfall from Bloomberg and then a pretty good economy. And then COVID came and we had federal funding just pumping everything up for a couple of years. And now economy's okay, but not great. The federal money's out and the city's in trouble. So there's a lot that he's dealing with at the same time. And as you know, kind of all the New York political insiders are sort of discussing well, who would run in a special election if he gets indicted and has to step down? Who could take him on in the primary in 2025? And, and I do think that those are legitimate conversations to have. But I also think that he can still turn this thing around. And so the piece that I wrote in my daily news column the other day was sort of the steps that I would take if I were him. 
Yeah, and give us a sense of, because I also think this is a good window into how you think, because I actually don't think there are a lot of people like you left in politics who have the experience of dealing, like, because, you know, in your book, you wrote about, what was his name in Chicago? One of your early experiences. Yeah. So you've worked with people who are like to say that they're in the hot seat is, is an understatement. Oh, I've testified in five either grand jury or corruption trials. Yeah. So you I think like a lot of people in politics, when they're in the middle of something like this, especially like the young up and comers now, they they would be frozen in a situation like this. I think you have the benefit of having been through the absolute worst of the worst when it comes to this kind of stuff. So you could think a little more clearly about it. So give us a sense of like your playbook here for Adams. Sure. I, it's right. I had lunch with a friend who works at City Hall the other day. And the point of the lunch was for me to say to him, when the FBI shows up at your apartment, here's what you need to do. Yes. Okay. Give it, give it to us. I've always that happened this. to me several times. <laughs> yeah. Give it to, actually, it's funny. I had it. I had a uh, funny that this, this is what happens, I guess, as you get older, I had dinner with a friend who's been in the middle of an FBI probe the other day, uh, and I had no idea she's been in the middle of it for five years. I think she it's listens very to this stressful. podcast, so shout out to you. I will not say who you are, but they. Uh, but so tell me, okay, in general sense, and then in the Adam sense, yeah. like how do you think about this? Look, here's the good and bad thing about being mayor, which is especially the reelection, and I, I should note for the listeners, so they know that I have a little knowledge on this. I ran Mike Bloomberg's mayoral campaign um, in 2009, and I worked for him at, at City Hall. So I've spent a lot of time in city government. And look, at the end of the day, people want their city to be clean, safe, and well-run. And there's all kinds of public policy issues that they may tell a pollster that they care about. And in theory, they don't like corruption. But the reality is, if the city feels good, they're happy, and they will gladly reelect the mayor. And if the city feels bad, it doesn't really matter if the mayor is endorsed by every left or right wing, wherever you are, policy group, um, or has a total clean bill of health when it comes to ethics. Um, they don't really care. And so I think for Adams, yes, he's got a lot of different problems he's facing right now. But I think the biggest problem is just that the city feels bad. It feels dirty. It feels dangerous. We have as many as 5,000 unlicensed weed shops that are just open for business with no enforcement whatsoever around them. We have a shoplifting epidemic, which is causing retail stores to close and which even just, and it sounds a little small, petty, but like, it's annoying to go to CVS and have to like wait for someone to come unlock a case so you can get a tube of toothpaste. And guess what you do instead? You order it on Amazon. And guess what that does? It causes more stores to close and even more jobs to be lost. Um, there's, there's scaffolding on almost every block in Manhattan and absolutely no enforcement of any of those laws. And that just creates, and I've talked to both the Manhattan and Brooklyn DAs about this problem, um, just more places for crime, for violence, for assault. Um, we have a fentanyl crisis and there are people who are just literally slumped over on the street, passed out all over the city. It feels really bad. And if he can clean that up, I think that the voters, assuming he's not sort of indicted for something really bad, um, will give him uh, another chance. And if he can't clean it up, then they're going to rightfully want someone else. And we have the micro crisis, obviously, on top of this. And I, I'm curious, I, you know, you know, I come from Staten Island, where we had a high profile fight over yep. housing of the migrants there that got really, really ugly. And I'm of two minds on this, which is one is, you know, you could see the Statue of Liberty from my window. And I'm a, my, my dad is an immigrant. And on my mom's side, my family, you know, 
in back in the early 20th century came here as immigrants and through Ellis Island. And I I'm proud of our history of welcoming immigrants, but I have been absolutely ashamed of our inability to handle this influx, but also understanding that it is a massive influx. And so I'm kind of torn knowing that the logistics of it are really bad, but also being not shocked, but just like disappointed that this is where we are, but really fearful because everything you just mentioned, now we add a massive budget crisis. You know, you and I know that the city doesn't know how to spend money anyway, but now this is like a massive shock to the system. Like what's your outlook on the future here on the immigrant front? Yeah, I mean, pretty bleak, to be honest. And I think that in in this case, it's not really Adam's fault, right? He doesn't control border security in in Texas or Arizona or anywhere else. He's not the one that that put migrants on a bus to New York City, nor did he create the right to shelter law, which legally requires him to provide beds for um, the migrants who come here. So um, not his fault, but at the same time, it is absolutely devastating from a budget standpoint, like you said. And one of the things I mentioned in that column is if you're gonna, um, he's gone after Joe Biden, ironically, that when he was started getting investigated by the FBI, he blamed it on that he was critical of Biden about the migrant crisis. So Biden sick the FBI, which right. I think is crazy. Right. Yeah. But, you know, if Biden sick the FBI and everyone that criticized him, they would literally do nothing. But uh, constantly investigating. I know. I would credit. have to. I would have to look over my shoulder. Honestly. Yeah, there'd be no FBI agents left for anything yeah. else. But now that you've gone there, it seems to me Adams does have some real political leverage here, right? Because Biden's reelect is certainly in doubt, and Biden's going to need strong black turnout. Um, yes, he's going to win New York City and New York, I mean, New York State, kind of no matter what Adams says or does, one way or the other. But if Adams becomes a very high profile critic and if he endorses someone else and Adams has endorsed Republicans in the past, by the way, um, and that leads to you know a couple of points turnout in, in African-American voters in Detroit or Milwaukee or Phoenix or whatever it is, that could be a really big problem. And so if I were Adams, I would lean into this. I would invite Joe Manchin up to New York City and tour all the migrant facilities and say, look what a mess the president has made. I would take Nikki Haley to dinner. I would take RFK Jr. to lunch. And I would keep scaring the White House until they understood if you don't come up with the billions of dollars in costs that you've basically saddled us with, we are going to make your life utterly miserable from a political perspective. And by the way, having worked in government enough times at enough levels, if they are sufficiently scared politically, they'll find the money. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned Biden. You know, you're somebody who I trust to to, to speak honestly. I have been in this sort of Axelrod camp of hey, maybe you should reconsider running for re-election camp, not fully knowing what the alternative would look like for Biden. Uh, where are you on this? Should Biden run again? Yeah, I mean, I just think that it, the, realistically speaking, I, I tried to kind of look through history and say, when has anyone stepped away from a position of power like this voluntarily? So George Washington did, right? They wanted to let him keep being president. But other than that, not really a lot of examples. And that's true of, Presidents, kings, dictators, heavyweight champions, movie <laughs> stars, like everyone hangs on for as long as they possibly can. That's human nature. And I don't think Biden is so extraordinary that he's going to defy human nature in any way. It may be that the generic Democrat or Newsom or Whitmer, Prisker, Shapiro, whoever we want to anoint, um, would be a better candidate against Trump. They certainly wouldn't have the the age issue. But the backup quarterback is always the most popular guy in town until he gets in the game. And then all of a sudden there's a million things you don't like about him, right? Like 
before Mike Bloomberg ran for president, all he ever heard was, Mike, run for president. It'd be great. Everyone would love you. The minute he ran, like, disaster. Right. And so one is, I, I think it's going to be much harder. Two, Harris would run as well. And if she loses the nomination, I think you might risk a significant decline in black turnout. And so the, and on a generic ballot, Gavin Newsom might do better against Trump if you have 15 percent drop in black turnout around the country. Look, Hillary Clinton lost to Trump because she assumed she would get the same kind of black turnout that Obama got and that her husband got. And she didn't. Right. And that was the difference in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. So um, I think. We don't really know what the alternative weather would actually be better. But even more realistically, I just don't see him going away no matter what we say or do. Um, so then the question is, how do you win this thing? Right. Yeah. And to me, there's a really strategic mistake that the Democrats keep making that I don't quite understand, which is we seem to think that if we keep howling about how evil Trump is, and if people just see one more piece of evidence, then they'll all realize he's terrible and nobody could possibly support him. Right. And the reason Biden's losing in polls to Trump is because everyone who's saying Trump to the pollster is fully aware of what a disgustingly horrible human being he is. And they're saying, I'm willing to make the trade-off. They believe that their life was better under Trump than it is under Biden, and therefore would be better again if Trump were president. You have to show them that that's not the case, right? Just constantly screeching about morality and ethics is not going to win you any more votes. You have to impeach him substantively. And where Trump is, I think, leaning into trouble is as as his crazy plans for his presidency are starting to emerge, whether deliberately or or through leaks, um, if they were to truly dismantle the whole federal government the way they're talking about, I think you can put it to people in real terms they'd understand, which is like that mandated coffee break that you get every two hours thanks to the Department of Labor, that's gone. You vote for Trump, you no longer get your coffee break. The food that you can just walk into any store and buy and believe that it'll be safe to eat because of the FDA, you're at you're on your own now. So you, you better have everything tested before you feed your kids, right? We get to the airport an hour, hour and a half early. TSA budget gets cut in half. Now it's three hours, right? I think if you can show people in tangible ways how their lives would be materially worse if Trump's plans were to come to fruition, that gives them a reason to sort of say that the trade-off isn't worth it. But if it's purely... You can't vote for Trump because he's evil. Well, they're gonna, and Biden will lose. Yeah, I'm. I'm very concerned, and I and I, you know, we could talk forever about it. But you're right that he's just not going to step aside. The only way he steps aside is if there's a health issue. Yeah, and then we're truly effed because you're already losing the ability to get on the ballot at this point. Let's so assume so- that that he had a debilitating health issue tonight, a stroke or something. Yeah. God forbid, right? I would imagine that in those cases, the state parties get together and change the timing and the rules around ballot access. I, I mean, I, can't I don't know how it works, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that they could do that. Um, you couldn't change like the date. You know, look, this is question. why Dean Phillips is honestly like I, I listened to his interview on Pod Save America yesterday and I wouldn't say I was impressed. But I do think that what he's saying makes some sense, which is we need somebody on the ballot other than you know, the, the kooks that are on the ballot right now, you, there, there needs to be somebody, there needs to be a cogent human being on the ballot in case of emergency. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, I guess if Biden were to actually not be able to run and let's say that Newsom or Whitmer couldn't get on the first few ballots because the deadline has passed and they couldn't change the deadline, arguably they would say, look, then, you know, rather than the press anointing someone who wins Iowa and New Hampshire is the winner, 
um, this thing has to play out to the convention. And then if, you know, one of them gets there by that point, um, they're probably okay. But in reality, it becomes Harris because like, unless, unless we were to have an issue today, like it would, it would be so far in the future that she'd be on the ticket. And I think legally it would be the easiest thing for the party. So so I'm not, but to your point, Harris right now is, yeah, she would lose. She would lose, but also just even legally, she'd be on the ballot. But as the vice president, I don't know it. She's she becomes president tomorrow, let's say. Right. I don't know that she automatically inherits Biden's ballot line. I don't she may have to get her own. So if the deadline is passed, she may have the same problem as everyone else. Yeah. I mean, what a nightmare. Wait, so I, I, I'm, I'm concerned, but I think we could talk a lot about it. But it's all theoretical because he's not going to step aside, no. and, and so then I do think it becomes well, what do we do? I think on the policy front, the thing that I've been looking at a lot is just this economic data, where it's like, actually there's a ton of great economic data for the yeah. country, including wealth accumulation at the lowest levels of the economic ladder, which is the opposite of what people think. People think the country's getting more unequal, and actually this has been a few year stretch where the opposite has happened. Yeah. And but nobody would nobody says that. And you you don't want to be in the business of politics of educating the electorate on what they actually are undergoing. So what do you do? I've been thinking a lot about housing. And I think there are two fronts of housing. There's a supply side, which like how can the federal government spur more housing development? Maybe like a race to the top style sort of incentive for local governments to build more housing. Or like what California did. Right. Yeah. Clear the way. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for the listeners who, who aren't aware of this, so California, and it was kind of surprising, but but in my view, very encouraging to see that Democrats who traditionally are totally supportive of all kinds of, you know, community board and environmental reviews and all of these things that they see as part of the sort of progressive process, they were willing to put aside and say, look, we just need so much more affordable housing in California we're going to streamline this significantly. And it seems to be working. Housing seems to be getting built. So, right, you could have uh, a race to the top version of that federally. Look, race to the top worked really well. Yeah, a little bit of money caused a lot of change. The second thing is, and I don't know how this would legally work, but I've been looking at like the Fed. I'm just so very confused by the Fed. I had a good conversation yesterday with Bethany McLean about her book on the COVID epidemic and just about like the quantitative easing and like how Trump bullied the Fed to keep the interest rates low before the pandemic, which kind of sowed the seeds of disaster once the pandemic hit, amongst many other things economically. But, you know, they're keeping interest rates high. And what's happening is people are locked into their homes. Uh, And like anybody who has a 3% interest rate is not leaving their home, whether they want to or not. And then other people who want to purchase homes have high interest rates, but can't even get a good supply because people aren't selling their homes. It seems to me that like, why do we have one policy on interest rates as a country? Why can't the federal government come in and say first time home buyers and or primary residents, uh, if you have only one home and it's your primary residence, you live there. Why can't the government step in and say we will make an exception and the federal government will facilitate low interest loans for just those people? I feel like if Biden, first of all, I think it's good policy, but I also think like that would be the most popular policy of all time. Like why wouldn't, Right. So basically another version of the mortgage deduction in a way. Yeah. So you're not even really, in this case, asking the Fed to change the way they calculate rates. You're just saying whatever rate you calculate, Jerome Powell, in this particular scenario, the sellers are entitled to A, B, and C. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that could certainly work. Um, but look, you know, you're, you're much more progressive than I am. Even if a handful of Republicans said they would be for this, um, does every Democrat get on board or does some demand that unless we also then ab- abolish all private, you know, enterprise and you know, <laughs> everything else, you know, we, we, we can't have this. I don't know, but I think it's for me, it's a more get caught trying, like let everybody stop you, but show that this is what you want and let everybody say no, but be like, this is what I want to do. At least you can, because t- if, if by some miracle you got that done, because I'm trying to think of like what is something because all the stuff Democrats pass like often it works but it's so complicated people don't even know that it's helping them like the Chips Act like right you know or, or it takes a while right I mean the Chips Act is really critical because if and when China does invade Taiwan Taiwan's ability to produce semiconductors for all of the U.S. tech companies you know is debilitated in a war. Um, the U.S. economy shuts down unless we can make those semiconductors in the U.S. And, and Congress and the president did a great job in sort of figuring out how to create the right economic incentives to make that happen here. But you're not going to see those plants opening and employing people and all of that for a while still, right? There's a lot of good stuff in the Inflation Reduction Act, in the infrastructure bill. But again, a lot of it you know, isn't going to produce dividends substantively or politically for a couple of years. Um, in fact, I remember when they passed the infrastructure bill, kind of saying, you guys need to front load the money as much as humanly possible so that you have some results to show voters by 24, because if you let it take its own course, just capital projects take a while, you know? And this is, you know, part of what I love about the Biden administration is there's a certain steadiness that it was an incredible relief after Trump. And part of what I don't love about the Biden administration is there's a resistance to doing things in totally unconventional ways. Yes. Um, and I think that that's coming back to haunt. By, I, Obama had the same problem. Like, you know, Obama was very, very careful. I mean, they did some innovative things for sure. Race to the top being one of yep. them. Yep. Uh, but they could have done more. But OK, turning to your book, which I actually think continues actually the contemporary um, conversations in many ways, because you're kind of pointing to the future in many ways, saying your book is really about a, you know, a, a hypothetical startup uh, of a sort of flying car company mm-hmm. that could very well happen. And I think as background, you worked not just in politics, but you were critical to some of the fights over Uber. Like yeah. You helped Uber establish itself throughout the country. And obviously that is, as we'll get to that, I think that is, if you read between the lines, there's a lot of that experience here. But before we get to any of that, you did something that not a lot of fiction writers do, which is you wrote a I don't know if you call it a prologue, but you wrote from your own perspective, and I'm going to quote what you said, and this is just your voice, not the characters or the narrator in the book. You said, "Um, when you need something done in government or at any level, you have to understand what motivates the people you need to persuade. The good news is that they're all solely focused on one thing and one thing only, re-election. 99% of politicians are desperately insecure, self-loathing people who can't live without the validation of holding office. They'll never prioritize solving any problem ahead of re-election ever. If they did, we wouldn't have school shootings or an opioid epidemic. One out of every 10 Americans wouldn't go hungry. Our roads and bridges wouldn't be on the verge of collapse. So I, I agree. Uh, yep. And uh, so this is a fairly cynical start to a book, one that I think yeah. is accurate. Tell me a little bit about why you felt the need to to go there at the beginning. Yeah, because um, and and that's why I've so much appreciated what what you said at the outset about the book, which is 
Um, I wrote the book because I love to write and I wanted to see if I could write a novel. But putting that aside, what I wanted to do was try to give the readers a sense of why decisions are made in politics, why decisions are made in tech, the underlying thinking and motivation, because even if it's a little fantastical in this book, because it's a satire in order to keep the readers entertained, everything's slightly exaggerated and crazy. But nonetheless, you can't do anything about any issue if you don't understand what influences the thinking of the person who has the power over it in the first place, right? And the main precept of the book, and at the very end of the book, I kind of, again, go back to my own voice and list the, the, the t- my 10 rules of politics is every policy output is the result of a political input. Every politician makes every decision solely based on re-election and nothing else. And because of gerrymandering, the only election that really matters is the primary. Primary turnout in this country is typically 10 to 15 percent. It's usually the furthest left or the furthest right or a handful of special interests who can move money and votes in that primary so we get one of two things. We get the total gridlock and dysfunction of Congress, or we get totally one-sided government, whether it's the state of Texas on the right or the city of San Francisco on the left. And if you want a politician to do something, they have to believe that within the primary electorate that they hold, doing your thing will either help them win their next election or not doing it could potentially cost their next election. If they believe either of those two things, they'll work with you. And if they don't believe either of those two things, you are irrelevant. And I have a whole mobile voting thing we can talk about that will hopefully structurally help help change all of this. But right now, this is how things are. And so what I want to get across in the book is politicians make decisions for very, very specific reasons. And they're not about public policy and they're not about the common good. They're not about ideology. Um, and rather than wishing that human nature were different, or that they were different, just like we're talking about Biden before, like, of course, it'd be great if he just said, I'll step aside for the good of the country. But he's not going to because that's not human nature. We need to accept them for who they are. And if we want to change the outputs, we got to change the political inputs. Yeah. You know, one thing I'm left thinking about that I think comes across a bit in your book is, you know, you've worked with politicians and you've worked with CEOs. Now, these are both kind of not the most loved people in the world. But one thing I would say about CEOs is they're generally clear about what they're about. They want to win with their business. I think the problem with working with politicians is they lie to themselves and you. It's like they, they, they're they actually about the reelection, but all the conversation dances around that. Sometimes. I mean, there are some politicians who have no problem just admitting to the reality, but so many of them, at least that I've dealt with, they're squirrely in that respect. They they yeah. might not even admit, they might even pass a lie detector test saying that they, that they care about the people, but their behavior says anything but. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, let me just give you t- two examples. Uh, one on the left, one on the right. So take take gun control. So um, do you remember who Chris Jacobs was? No. So he was a congressman from upstate New York, Republican Trumper, right? Like this is not a liberal guy by any means. He voted against impeachment and against certifying the election, all, all that stuff, right? There was a mass shooting in a supermarket in Buffalo a couple of years ago. Uh, Ten people died. It was right next to Jacobs District. And he was shaken by it because he grew up around there. And Oh, is he the guy from, he represents Lewiston and uh, Youngstown? Yeah, uh, yeah I yeah, used yeah. to live in, in that as a kid. Right, because yeah. Yeah, he went, to, right, he went yeah. to Binghamton, right? Yeah, so yeah. At, at a press conference, he said, maybe we ought to do something about assault weapons. This was September. The reelect was November. They stripped the Republican and conservative party lines from him for daring to utter the words, maybe we ought to do something about this problem, right? So, of course, 
the Republicans are not going to vote for an assault weapon ban because they just saw what happened, which is if you ever even think about it out loud, you lose your job, let alone if you were actually dare to vote for it. Or closer to home here in New York City, uh, remember when Amazon was trying to build their second headquarters in Queens, the majority of the city was for it based on the polling. Majority of the district was for it based on the polling. However, you know, turnout in that state Senate primaries, you know, 12%, 13%, pretty low. Mike Janaris, who is the state senator from Long Island City, who is a very smart guy, understood that if he supported the project, he would likely be inviting a primary from the left because the people who do vote in that primary are ultra left wing AOC type voters. And Janaris said, I don't want that headache. And so he killed the project. But as a result, in order to save one job, his own, he killed 40,000 jobs. Um, that we really could have used because the next year COVID hit and the city lost half a million jobs, right? And so you know, both parties are equally guilty of this, which is they're never going to put what's good ahead of their next election. And so you have to make them believe that what you think is good is also impactful for them electorally. Yeah, the the Amazon piece is astounding, actually, if you think about it. Now, and there were a whole bunch of problems with the way that that went down. Sure. But like the, the it could have been solved if there was good faith, Right. And I think like the fact that there was some kind of principled stand happening, like you walk around this city, there are Amazon delivery people on every block of every city whenever there is light coming down from the sun. And everybody's receiving their stuff, as you described from Amazon, in part because of, you know, just the dominance of their supply chain, but also because we're not doing a very good job of supporting our local businesses who would in any way compete with them. So the idea that somehow we're going to rid ourselves of Amazon, like it's not the Walmart fights. Like when we chased Walmart out of Staten Island, and I forget when that was, maybe the late 90s, early 2000s, that wasn't a smart fight, but you you actually don't have, like at that point you had to drive somewhere to buy something. They, they It was like, I don't even know what they were trying to accomplish, right? Like they could have gotten a better deal for the city with Amazon just through some smart negotiation, but they chased out Amazon in a way. It's not like Amazon's gone, but. I just don't know well, what was gained they, by they that. They chased out the, the jobs that would have come at the headquarters right. um, purely for the optics of it, right? Why? Because for as long as the perception would have been that by supporting the deal, Janaris was sort of sold out to this giant corporate interest, he wasn't willing to take that political risk. Would he have still won his next primary? Yeah, I bet he, he would have anyway, but he didn't want to take any risk. And so not taking risk meant killing the project. Yeah, I mean, what a bummer. So, okay, so you start this book... Uh, actually right down the street where I am right now over at Metro Tech. Uh, and the sort of, the main character of your book is uh, a woman named Lisa Lim. Tell us about Lisa Lim. Yeah, so Lisa is a political consultant. Um, so the, as you said, the premise of the book is it's about a campaign to legalize flying cars in New York, Los Angeles, and Austin. On one side of the campaign is Flight Deck, the flying car startup, and their vicious political consultants of whom Lisa is one of them. The other side is Uber, the Autobahn Society, the Socialists, the Transit Unions, and the Russian mob. And like <laughs> I said, it's a little satirical and fictional, but like you said, uh, I do have some, some experience around this from my time working at Uber and working with Uber and legalizing ride sharing. You know, the Russian mob stuff might not be quite as, as you know, ludicrous as it sounds. Um, but Lisa is the number two at the political consulting firm. And she's a little bit kind of the, the hero and the moral conscience of the book. She is trying to pass this bill to legalize flying cars in all three cities. Um, and her boss, Nick Denevito, 
is in legal trouble and has, you know, been gambling on tech startups and lost a lot of money and borrowed from loan sharks and doesn't want to get his kneecaps broken. And so he's been doing all kinds of shady stuff. And Lisa's trying to figure out how does she work with the FBI? How does she still not totally sell out her friend Nick? How does she help pass this bill, but pass it in a way that is not totally unethical? Um, and so she is going through these various moral calculations. And with that said, she's still a totally badass, ruthless, you know, political operative. And, you know, the book sort of follows her choices that she has to confront along the way. Yeah. And and it's sort of, I would say like one of the other sort of sort of gravitational pulls of this book is, is a woman named uh, Susan Howard, who's kind of the CEO of the company. And I think I can't help but thinking about Travis Kalanick when I think of this this character. Yeah, I mean, there it's, I, I, and I've obviously been asked that question uh, before. Um, you know, Travis and I have known each other for a, a long time. Uh, you know, I started working with and, and getting equity in Uber back in 2011. Um, and I still work with Travis uh, on a new startup and had dinner with him as recently as a couple of weeks ago in LA. Susan has some of Travis's qualities in the sense that, that Travis too is and remains relentless, ruthless, incredibly focused, you know, just almost maniacally determined to, to succeed where Susan is and, and, you know, Travis succeeds in real life and Susan maybe doesn't in the book is there's a level of sort of common sense and you have to be able to see past all of the different stereotypes of sort of, she's like a tech, a female tech bro, basically. And, you know, every conceivable stereotype of how the worldview is shaped by these people who think that if you went to Harvard Business School, you're automatically the smartest person on the planet, <laughs> um, she fails to see. And as a result, you know, some of the politics coming at her, she doesn't know what to do. And look, this is really based on my experience in venture capital. So we are the one venture fund that solves the political problems of our portfolio companies. And oftentimes our founders are, they're always really smart and they can be great engineers or great marketers, but frequently you see tech founders not understand that politics and regulation can take you down completely if you don't take it seriously and you, you don't have the right resources devoted to it. And so Susan, at least in this case, understands that she has to devote the right resources to it. Um, but nonetheless, she's so clueless in some ways that she's her own worst enemy. Yeah, and I, and I think there's, who was I listening to the other day who made this point? I think it might've been Ryan Holiday when he was talking about, who's that guy? Tucker Max. So like Tucker Max was this writer in the 90s who, uh, or early 2000s, who wrote some like incendiary books about his time in college that, I won't go into, but he and Ryan Holiday were friends for a while. And then Tucker took a kind of like a turn during the pandemic. And Ryan Holiday was asked about it. Hey, what's your relationship with Tucker Max like? And he was like, look, it's not great because like Ryan Holiday, I think, took a uh, a certain view on the pandemic. Uh, and and Tucker Max, I think, went into full MAGA during yeah. the pandemic. Yeah. And, and Holiday said something really interesting. And I wish I had the direct quote, but he said something like, look, and he was talking about Elon Musk, too, and all these people. And he's like, there are these people who at some point they were unfairly attacked by the media. And he said, and he might even have been talking about Rogan too. I can't remember, but he say like, they, they've been attacked so many times unfairly that at a certain point they can't see clearly after that. And then they wind up treating the media like full on opposition and almost 
you know, like, you know, we're talking on Friday, uh, December 1st, Musk gave this interview at the, uh, the New York Times or the Deal Book or whatever that Andrew Ross Sorkin thing. It's yeah. like almost daring the media and his investors. It's like, essentially saying like at a certain point, they just are reflexively anti-media in a way that is both psychologically understandable, but in- incredibly damaging. And I think of this when I think of your character, Susan Howard, because at a certain point, she's gotten into this like, almost trench warfare with the media. And there's like this big press conference scene where she kind of unravels. And I'm wondering, like, do you share Ryan Holiday's view? Because I feel like I often am like, yeah, if I were this person, I would hate the media too. Like if I were Musk, I would hate the media. But then I'm like, but I also look at Musk and I'm like, this guy has kind of lost himself a little bit. Yeah, know? I mean, I I think that you see this with CEOs, you see, especially at that level, right? And I forget our Susan Howard, Elon Musk is the richest person in the world, right? Um, and you see this with high-level politicians, which is they're so used to be told only hearing what they want to hear from everyone around them, and they don't surround themselves with people who are willing to sort of make them mad that when all of a sudden the media and the media has lots and lots of flaws that we can talk about, but but they're doing their job when they're pointing out problems and asking questions. Um, it infuriates them because they think that they shouldn't be subject to any kind of scrutiny because they're not used to it. Right. Because like one of Mike Bloomberg's great traits is he surrounds himself with people who will tell him no. Right. And tell him that he's wrong. And that on some level, I think, helps give him some perspective. But typically, you know, people at that level don't have that and they come indignant. And, you know, to the same way that you said that politicians are motivated generally by reelection, but kind of lie to themselves and pretend that they're motivated by public policy or the common good or whatever it is, you know, you have someone like Elon Musk saying, well, I'm sure he's saying to himself, I'm saving the world because I've made electric vehicles a thing that really weren't before. And I'm figuring out how to move us all to Mars. And I've put up all these satellites that allow us all to communicate. And here they are giving me a hard time about some retweet or some comment I made on X, right? And, you know, maybe from his perspective, it's totally unfair. Uh, And by the way, there was no legal requirement that he appear at the deal book conference, right? right? I mean, to a certain extent, either you can say, I don't like the media, I'm not gonna do media, or you could say, media is part of you know my overall job and I'm going to deal with it. But if you're going to deal with it and embrace it, it doesn't mean that you have to tell reporters what they want to hear, but you have to at least recognize that they have the right to ask the question. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm puzzled. And honestly, like I'm left wondering, and you, and you wrote this uh, piece, I think it was called 50 lessons or from 50 years or something. You just recently yeah. turned 50. Yep. And um, let me see if I have it here. There was one rule that this reminds me of. Uh, which is 29. Okay, rule 29. And I've been thinking about this rule. It's that everyone is making it up. You said everyone. Everyone has traumas, issues, things in their past that heavily influence their judgment and opinions, which means no one is unbiased or objective. So take their opinions, advice, views with a grain of salt. And especially when you're finding a life partner, when you go into personal stuff. But it's yeah. like, I've been thinking about this because I've read so many books over the past month or two. I read the, the Michael Lewis book about SBF. I read the, the Ray Dalio book. Um, and uh, Bob Copeland, I think, was the author of that. I read Bethany McLean and Jonah Sarah's book that I interviewed them about yesterday. My buddy runs Industrious, which is basically like the dominated WeWork, which fell apart with Adam Newman. You know, you look at these people all around and you're like, the most like seemingly impressive people in the world, uh, and I would put Musk there, are so transparently broken sometimes and flawed that I think it should humble our audience. Like it basically like, 
I was thinking about your rule and I'm like, the corollary to everyone is making it up is don't sell yourself short. Just go do whatever the hell you want to do because nobody out there is as impressive as you think they are. Like, like I couldn't do what Musk does. I'm not as smart as Musk. Like that is beyond question. But like his flaws are equally as dumbfounding yeah. to me. You know we, what I'm saying? We, we tend to have this real desire to either put someone in a narrative box and either they're all bad or they're all good. And I think, and I think Lewis did a good job of explaining this in the Sam Bankman Freed book, where we really want to believe that there is someone who is so much smarter than us and better than us that if we just trust in them, even if what they're doing doesn't seem to make sense, they know better than we do and they'll get it right. I think it's partly why superhero movies are so popular. But at the end of the day, everyone is two sides of the same coin. Like I remember when I was deputy governor of Illinois and working for Rod Blagojevich. Now, Rod it, it had a couple of skill sets that were just remarkable. He is the best retail politician I've ever seen. Um, he was had incredible political instincts. He was great with a crowd. And look, you, you don't go from being you know the son of a steel worker to the governor of the fifth biggest state without having some really genuine skill sets. But then in most other skill sets, he was like in the bottom decile of human functioning. And for the first couple of years, I kept saying, well, if he could only be a little more hardworking, a little more diligent, a little more honest, whatever it is, you know, then we'd be so great. And then finally hit me like everyone is two sides of the same coin. Right. And it, and that for the same reason they have some great qualities is probably the same reason why they have some bad qualities. And there's no one immune from good qualities or bad qualities. And, you know, we have to decide to accept people for who they are or decide that we, their bad qualities outweigh whatever value they provide. And you don't want to deal with them. Um, but I think that either uh, anointing anyone as the savior never really works. Um, and at the same time, deciding that someone else knows a lot better than you do and you should just take their advice and opinion on everything. Like, even if they mean really well in giving you that advice. They're shaped by all their own shit, by the the fight they had with their spouse that morning, by whatever's going on in their job. Uh, they bet on the 49ers and the Niners didn't cover the spread or w whatever it is. No one is capable of giving you truly objective advice. So you might want to seek advice, but you got to take it with a grain of salt. In fact, I've been toying around with this idea. Of, could you use AI to create a version of the rational self? So it's you based on all of your thinking mindset goals when you know at, at the most rational state possible which is then not how we actually operate on a day-to-day -day basis and you can always go back to it to make decisions and say like okay the me right now is upset or happy or excited or feels bad about a b and c and that's likely to influence my decision in these ways but knowing my big picture mindset and perspective what would i do and maybe you ai could actually create this sort of a constantly existing rational self that could at least tell you like, yeah, you may right now want to eat that cookie or turn down that job or send this email or whatever it is. But in the big scheme of things, based on your own inputs, A, B, C, D, and E, it's probably not a good idea, right? Or vice versa, either way. Um, I, I, you know, I think you could probably build that. I think that'd be kind of interesting to have. Yeah. I mean, in your, uh, you know, as you go through professional success uh, in this, this same post, the sort of 50 rules or lessons, it, I think like the, the question of AI kind of was in the back of my mind because you're somebody who's employed a lot of people, you've worked with a lot of startups, you've worked on the regulatory side of things. 
When you think of the next 10 years, not beyond 10, but the next 10 years, and you're thinking about people who are making professional decisions, how to spend their time, how to think about AI. Yeah. What's going to make a successful person who obviously, like, assuming this person is not an AI proficient person right now, what would you be doing if you were, you know, 10, 20 years? Yeah, look, I, you know, I, I, it's funny. So you mentioned, I, I teach at Columbia Business School and I reserve the last class of the semester, which has come this, this, this coming Tuesday for just doing life and career advice. We've kind of wrap up all the coursework. Um, the week before, because it's just be able to answer questions like this for the students, because I've had the benefit of some life experience at this point. Look, AI, interestingly, is not going to wipe out the blue collar worker. It's going to bl- wipe out the low level, lower skill white collar worker, right? So, for example, I'm an investor in a company called the Contract Network, and it's an AI company that if you're drawing up a contract, automatically populates all of the industry standards, all of the market norms, everything you might want to see and need. But what does that ultimately mean? You probably don't need that many paralegals anymore um, because this is able to do it for you, right? And so the job of paralegal may not exist in 10 years. So there are there are skills that are human, right? And I try to get this a lot in that, in that essay, and it, it's on Medium if you want to look for it. It's called 50 Reflections at 50, that the abil- instincts, character, integrity, the ability to sell, communication skills, those are the kind of skills that ultimately, to me, really determine success far more so than where you went to school, right? I've got a daughter who's a college senior right now, and I've kind of reached the conclusion that it doesn't matter where she goes to college, right? As long as she's happy and has a good experience, great. But at the end of the day, it's really not a determinant. Unless your only goal of life is to be a consultant at McKinsey or something, like, it is really not a determinant of your success at all. It's all these other skills that aren't necessarily IQ and aren't necessarily ac- academic pedigree that really determine what succeeds. And in a world where AI is going to come for a lot of white collar jobs, those sort of non IQ academic skills, I think, become more important than ever. Yeah. And you, you talk about the importance of hard work. And I don't know if I ever told you this, but when Chris Marte, who's now the, the city councilman down in uh, District 1 in Manhattan, when he used to work for me at Arena, he used to send me an email every morning. We used to call the Tusk email. And I, I had forgotten about this until I read this essay because you used to write Mike Bloomberg a 5 a.m. email. Yeah, every day. Now, now, people don't come at me. I don't, I don't think I asked Chris to write it at 5 a.m. But I used to say, look, every day I want to know what you're working on. And we used to just call it the Tusk email. So I just wanted to- Thank you. That's, just uh, like, it reminded me of- Yeah, the, no, we look, I when, I, the, when I was running Mike's campaign in 09, I was super neurotic and working around the clock. I also had a newborn at the time, so I was up a lot during the night anyway. And I would send Mike an email every day at 5 a.m. that said, uh, here's who's endorsing you today, because we did endorsement every day. And actually, here's their phone number. Please call them and say thank you, because if it wasn't an event. Um, and here's what's going on. Poll numbers, door knocks, you know, whatever we were doing, because- Mike's not that interested in politics, and I wanted him to feel comfortable that I had everything under control. If I needed him over the course of the day, of course, I'd reach out to him. But otherwise, he could focus on his day job uh, of being mayor. And then when I started my first company, Touch Strategies, in 2010, um, just kind of kept the process going. But we would send our clients an email at 7 a.m. every day explaining kind of what was going on in the campaign. Um, and they loved it, right? And that practice still continues today. I don't even work at the strategies anymore, but I, I still own it. But yeah, and, and that gets to the point of hard work, which is 
it is totally fine to say, I want work-life balance. That is a reasonable and probably intelligent conclusion to reach. Um, what you can't, what is not fine to say, I want work-life balance, and then I want all of the spoils that come with great success, right? If you want the spoils to come with great success, that means that you have to succeed, and that means working insanely hard. It means that 5 a.m. email, right? It doesn't mean that you stay till 6.30 instead of 5.45. And I think that where sometimes I feel like the cranky old guy is feeling like this generation um, wants all of the trappings that come with great success without putting in the effort, and the two are somewhat mutually exclusive, and you are probably better off from an overall life satisfaction standpoint having less success and a far better work-life balance because ultimately what a lot of success gives you doesn't really make you that happy. Uh, and I talk about this in the essay, something called the rival fallacy, which is you think that, oh, when I find like you and I, you know, neither of us practice law, but we both went to law school. So we have lots of friends who I think felt like, oh, when I finally make partner these 10 years of horrible work, will all be worth it because I'll be so blissfully happy for the rest of my life. And they are happy for like a month or two. And then it kind of goes back to normal. They're like, right. shit, it's not that much better. And they have some more money. But you know what? Every, there are other people who still have more money than that, right? And that's true of pretty much everybody. And so we tend to think that if we attain more status, more prestige, buy more stuff, that will finally make us happy. But there's this thing called the hedonic treadmill, which means effectively you never get off of that, that cycle. So the more and more you achieve and the more and more you can buy and everything else, the more and more you don't realize what you don't have and want even more of it. And so it's, it's a hopeless pursuit. Um, and where happiness, and I've spent a decent amount of time sort of studying this stuff, tends to come from is relationships and fulfillment. It's that when there are people in your life who you care about and they genuinely care about you and you're there for them and they're there for you and they're there when you're down and they're happy for you when you succeed. And there are things that you do that bring you meaning and that could be in your work, it could be your hobbies, it could be volunteer activities, it could be your faith, whatever it is. When people have high uh, propensities of those two things, their happiness scores and rankings tend to be much higher. Uh, and if you lack those two things, you can have all the money in the world. I mean, Donald Trump's a perfect example, right? He has had the most powerful job in the world. He's really rich, whether he's a real billionaire or not. Um, lives in total luxury, you know, celebrity, beautiful women, like everything that you would want to check on a box, he's checked. That guy seems miserable, right? I mean, you oh. talk about Musk. Musk admits that his life is miserable. Yeah. Like, yeah, there you go. If you read that, um, who is it? Isaacson book. It's like it's one quote after another where this guy is like, yeah, oh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't actually get through it. I, I tried. It wasn't through, a yeah, great book. It wasn't a great yeah. book, but it was, it was, it, it was insightful on the second half. If you hadn't read the, uh, Courtney Vance or whoever wrote the other one, like there's like the second phase of craziness of Musk. And it's just, it, it goes to show you that you're right. And like the Arthur Brooks book on happiness, I think is yep. a lot of stuff that you're drawing upon there. Yep. There's like yep. some good stuff sure. there. Well, okay, Bradley, this was amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, for thanks for having me. And, and thanks for reading the book. I'm glad you liked it. And uh, yeah, you know, I'd love to keep talking about this stuff. All right. Well, everybody uh, go out there and get obvious in hindsight, wherever you get your books. If you happen to be in Manhattan, uh, stop by P&T uh, on the Lower East Side there on the corner of what is it? Orchard. And let me see if I can get this right. Orchard yeah. and Rivington. So close. Uh, we are uh, 180 Orchard Street between Houston and Stanton. Right Stanton. in the middle of the Yes, I was on Ludlow and Stanton. Everyone always forgets Stanton. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so a uh, wonderful part of New York. You can go there and, and see all the, the the crazy that Bradley talks about, but it's also still a wonderful little corner of the city. 
Uh, and uh, you're, you're across the street from that pizzeria from Billions. What's the name of that pizzeria? Pizzeria Una Napolitana. Yeah, I love that place. Yeah, really uh, good pizza, not easy to get into. Oh, yeah, I remember they opened it. I was there that, that week they opened it. Well, okay, uh, and uh, listen to the Firewall podcast. Thank you. Uh, yep. and, and Bradley, thank you very much. Everybody, um, make sure to get out there. Leave us a voicemail, 321-200-0570, 321-200-0570. We'll see you next week.